Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Each week, we seek to explore how beliefs are shaping our world, our culture, our politics, as well as the rituals that give us a sense of meaning. Rituals like bidding a year goodbye. As we begin 2021 and our first episode of the year, we felt it fitting to take inspiration from that traditional folk song, Old Lang Sane, played on New Year's Eve when the clock strikes midnight. Robert Burns' iconic song is about reflection and helps us bid farewell with lines that remind us to remember old times and where we're coming from. This week, producer Kimberly Winston sets out to talk with a diverse group of faith and spiritual leaders who reflect on where we have been, how we have changed, and where we may be headed. I think we can all agree it has been a year. As I write this, more than 330,000 Americans have died of COVID-19, including a friend of mine. And I am recording this in Northern California, where several counties around me have zero available ICU beds. It's been hard to find meaning or purpose in such times. And fortunately, that's not my job. It is the job of clergy, theologians, and other people who think deeply about religion and the nature of faith. So I asked them. You know, there's certainly an old adage that says, may you live in interesting times. That's Rabbi Neil Blumoff, head of a conservative synagogue in Austin, Texas. Like everyone I spoke to, his house of worship is shuttered and all activities have moved online. And that, he says, has led to new insight into what it means to be part of a Jewish community. So it's, a, it's an existential question of what are we doing here in the first place? Are we here to maybe check off ritual moments and not immerse in their meaning and their sense of uh, wonder that they can offer for us? Or are we here to recognize that this community is a greater good and allows us to be better able to pivot towards all that which is in our world? And hopefully we continue to build on the practice that we are recognizing the unshakability of the community and the necessity of the community as well. And it it gives us not a honeymoon per se, but it gives us a fresh chance and fresh outlook to look at things differently with wonder, with hope and aspiration. We don't shy away from the real suffering that people have, of course, but rather than be overwhelmed by our existence, our challenges, our insecurities, I think doubling down on a sense of hope and a sense of the power of what community can do is an urgent need at this time. Emily Scott is a Lutheran pastor who serves two congregations in Baltimore. While her congregations strain under the pandemic, they have also tapped into an unusual practice. I think it's one of our most important spiritual practices. And my ministry right now takes place in the midst of um, an LGBTQ rooted community. And resilience is actually a practice and a a value, I would say, that's right at the heart of the LGBTQ community. It's something that we've learned to 
um, to practice and engage in because the world around us has not always seen us as enough or as valuable or even as, you know, against God's wishes. And so that sense of being able to kind of, I want to say sort of like send deep roots into your well of knowledge that you in fact are good and of God and to kind of keep finding joy in the midst of hardship is one that is incredibly integral to the LGBTQ community historically and now. One thing I've seen really beautifully is the way that the more secure members of the community have offered help and companionship to those who are more vulnerable. And I think that's a practice of resilience of kind of saying, um, even as I myself am struggling, I can kind of reach and be part of this community to help all of us be more resilient together. I think we saw that a life of Torah and Mitzvot, a Jewish life, is not something that can be outsourced to a synagogue. It has to be something that each person, each individual takes ownership of in his or her own personal life, that the quarantine home is as much a location where a Jewish life can happen and must happen as the synagogue. That's Chicago Rabbi David Wolkenfeld. While many religious groups have taken their Sabbath worship online, his congregation cannot. They are orthodox and refrain from technology and anything else that looks like work, from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. An awareness of what our ancestors have experienced, their suffering, their hardships, can build resilience. Most of our families in our community, we have you know, a grandparent or great-grandparent who survived the Holocaust or hardship in Soviet Russia or, you know, or, or you know, fled uh, the Tsar's army you know, in the 19th century and passed along those stories to future generations. And you know, compared to those types of hardships, compared to you know, spending three years in a bunker in, a, in the Polish countryside during the Second World War, you know, what we're struggling through is really quite you know, not, not nearly, not, not even approximately as challenging. And, and I don't think that's not, that's not meant to make us feel callous toward you know, suffering and we're, we're going through this very, very hard. But I think we can have some confidence in knowing that, you know, in living memory, our grandparents and you know, great-grandparents survived much worse. And, and so we can survive this too. I also called Varun Soni, Dean of Religious Life at the University of Southern California. USC is in Los Angeles the current epicenter of COVID-19 deaths. Sony, who is Hindu, has the difficult task of helping college kids navigate through the pandemic. Many are tuning in online to the university's faith programs at rates of up to four times higher than before. This is the first real shared global experience of suffering we've gone through, uh, probably since World War II, in, in a way that everyone is impacted uh, in some way or another across the world. When people go through those kinds of challenges, they they go back to faith. You know, we saw an explosion of interest in people returning back to their, to their faith communities. They might not have gone to mass in a long time. This is the year they might have gone to mass online. This is the year they might have attended a Bible study, having not done so. Uh, the language of religion emerges during crisis, and it can be a powerful protective factor because it gives people a community and a place in the world and a sense of order in the disorder. It gives people something to look forward to. It gives people hope at a time when we have seemingly little to look forward to. And so I do see that faith or religion is hardwired into us in some way or another. It is a human expression of, of suffering. And in times of great suffering, 
people go back to faith to make sense of it. And so I did see that. Drew Hart is a theologian at Messiah College in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Hart works at the intersection of religion and race and says last summer's murder of George Floyd revealed that we are actually in the grip of a double pandemic of COVID and systemic racism. And it was interesting when when everything began to shut down, I was thinking like, oh, I guess you know, this will be on hold for a while. But what actually ended up happening was the opposite. More churches than have been have opened themselves up to hear the stories of others and to enter into the pain of others. And, and so it, there was actually something really beautiful happening um, that I think gets lost in a real reality, which is that many faith communities dug their heels in. But below that surface, there's also another story, another narrative that I think sometimes gets missed of um, communities that actually really wanted to love their neighbors, right? Um, communities that actually were trying to hear and seek to understand and to grow and to be transformed as a people and to find new practices, right? New ways of living moving forward, a new America that's emerging, um, that has more space for difference and plurality. Um, and, and it is trying to find a way uh, for a society that can thrive amongst the vast differences that we have in society. From her pulpit in Baltimore, Reverend Emily Scott sees something similar. I'm certainly no expert in historical movements or social change, but I think there's a sense during this time that something has really been uncovered about what is broken in our society. And we've kind of known that and been able to sort of, you know, waltz along. Those of us who have a certain set of privileges have been able to ignore it for a little while, but I think there's been this deepening sense of unease and a deepening level of discrepancy between the haves and the have-nots. And I just think it's just becoming so clear, first of all, that we're all connected. The pandemic has really showed us that (laughs) we are fundamentally connected to each other. We can't be in the world without um, the risk of spreading this disease to one another. And we've seen it go through the globe, which shows us how connected we are to each other globally, but also that a large majority of the American people are struggling in some major way, whether it's with systemic racism or poverty or joblessness. And my hope is that that sort of revelation, that revealing of where we are as a nation will inspire a really deep set of changes. Some themes are emerging from this virtual roundup, that faith can help us tap into resilience, can help us make sense of the senseless, and can bring us into community at a time when we are most isolated. So I asked a contrarian's question, where has faith failed us in this pandemic? Varun Soni, the USC chaplain, says faith has not been there to help us collectively process the loss of so many and so much. We haven't haven't actually been able to memorialize what we've been going through. I think one of the reasons why there's this unresolved underlying grief and loss that many people are carrying with them in ways that they haven't fully honored or affirmed is because we're going through the fourth largest mass casualty event in American history. 300,000 Americans have died in the last eight months. And yet there's been no national moment of remembrance. There's been no national moment of memorialization. There's been no liturgical event. There's been no day of rest. There's been nothing that honors the immense grief and pain and tragedy we're going through. That has traditionally been the role of religion. And In the absence of those kinds of rituals, it's hard for us to fully comprehend what we're going through. Now we're going through it 
So it's hard also to comprehend something as you go through it. And there will be a time when we're post-pandemic reflecting upon it. But I do wish that we had more um, people, and especially religious and spiritual people, in the public sphere, in the public discourse, talking about the need to ritualize, memorialize, and honor the pain that we've just gone through. I think where I've watched faith fall short is when we're not being like connecting faith to the reality of people's lives. That's Becky Eldridge. She is a Catholic spiritual director who manages a vast online community from her home in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Her ministry, she says, is to help people bring God to what she calls the real of their lives, their real pain, their real suffering, and their real anger in different faith communities, we can sometimes brush past it to kind of get to almost an an optimism versus really offering people hope. And I always tell people, you know, hope to me is not being naive. It's not being ignorant. It's not putting our head in the sand like an ostrich, but it's naming the reality of what what we're holding, right? And right now we are holding global suffering. So it's giving people permission to feel what they're feeling and helping them kind of put name to what they're feeling, what they're going through, and then helping them know that God meets us in this. That in a lot of ways, I feel like we're running into our spiritual poverty that we all at some point, I think in our life, will run into that moment where we realize we're lacking something. It's right there in our spiritual poverty that God most seeks to come dwell and draw near to us. So that's just something that gives me personally great comfort to, again, to know that God sees what I see, feels what I feel, hears what I hear, and continues to seek to draw near to me in it and to near to all of us in it. There's great comfort for me in knowing that I don't have to hold on to hope by myself, that there's a power greater than me that is helping me hold on to hope. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be right back continuing the conversation with religious leaders, exploring the question of how this year has changed us, what we have learned, and how we can look towards the future. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. 
And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show.